Hello, and welcome to another edition of our podcast, Disrupting the Dominoes. I'm Ernie Lemus, the CEO of Babe Prevention. That's proactive anti-violence education. We are so excited for our guest for our second season. Our next guest is incredible. They are a pediatrician in emergency medicine at Lower Reese Children's Hospital in Chicago, a professor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine with a research focus on injuries in children with an emphasis on differentiating abuse from accidental trauma, hundreds of published articles in really identifying how to keep our children safe from abuse. So please welcome to this episode of Disrupting the Dominoes, Dr. Mary Clyde Pierce. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be on the program with you. I'm excited what you guys are doing. And I also am thrilled that we've met and we have some similar ideas and passions. So I'm very excited about this. Great. You've got so much going on. So I'm just first, just right off the bat, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of this. And already thank you for just so many of the smaller conversations we've had about these topics. So before we get started, please just share a little bit, Dr. Pierce, on who you are, what you've been doing, how you got to today. Yeah, sure. I, I'm a pediatric ER doctor, and that's really where I've started seeing patients, you know, right after I finished my residency and then especially training in emergency medicine. And then I started seeing patients, and I really quickly started noticing children that had injuries that were different than children that had injuries from accident versus children that had been physically assaulted. Children that were in violent homes, they actually behaved differently. They had injuries that were different. And I really hadn't studied this very much in med school, really at all. And the the thing that was so striking to me is that many times these children had warning signs or earlier warning signs that people were missing. That was one of the things that really stood out to me. And the other thing that really stood out to me is that sometimes when these children would come to the ER, their demeanor would be different or they would actually sometimes be withdrawn or sometimes they would be overly excited to be there and want to stay in the in the hospital or be in, stay in the ER. So this really stood out to me. Um, and so I, by, by the beginnings of my career, started with a baby that had a femur fracture. It was deep, you know, the thigh bone, the, one of the largest bones in the body was fractured. Turned out to be an abuse case. And I was really appalled at the lack of science that was that existed or didn't exist behind understanding how to tell the difference between abuse and accidental injuries. So that really launched a whole entire career path in a direction that I had no intention of ever going to, but you just follow what bothers you, right? And so you follow what impassions you, or you follow what you care about, or you follow what you're joyful about. So this career path has allowed me to do all of those things, because once you actually can identify that child that's in an abusive environment or a dangerous environment, it's amazing what can happen if you give people the resources they need, or you help resource families, or you work with agencies in collaboration to try to give that child a better life or restore the health back to that child. So fast forward to many years where I kept just following the question and kept following the question. And we identified that, you know, I I started noticing that children that had been abused early in life often had health problems later in life. A lot of people had noticed this. This is just well, it's a well-known phenomena. And Mm -hmm. so I've always been obsessed with why, like why? If you can figure out the why, then maybe you can do something about it before they actually go into that trajectory. You know, you can prevent what you can predict, right? And so trying to understand that has been really a passion that I've always, that I've really had, you know, from, you know, ever since I've been in medicine, even probably before medicine, honestly. And that's when I started going to like different conferences and trying to listen and hear 
what other people were doing in the area of biology and understanding how people physiologically react to injury or physiologically react to violence. And that's where I really got excited because your genes and your, the way we interact with our environment, phenomena called epigenetics, our genes get turned on or off according to what we're experiencing. And sometimes it could be a long-time experience or it could be a short-term experience, but that's how our body interacts with the world around us and our environment around us. And some of those very things that cause our, in, our epigenetics to actually turn on and then stay dysregulated are also the same things that are connected to all kinds of diseases later in life. And so that is important, but it's also exciting because if we can see it early on, we can help children get back into a healthy state or adults get back into a healthy state. It carries, we have epigenetics, it's part of our life. It's part of our, the way we, our fiber of how we interact. And so to kind of think about this differently, I call violence an environmental toxin. It's, that it's kind of like this clandestine environmental toxin that people don't really talk about or think about in a way that we should be treating it just like we would lead poisoning or anything else. And so just to really, you know, here I am a clinician, I'm not a basic scientist, but I collaborate with people. I get an idea, I get a passion about something and I find the best that I could possibly collaborate with. And then we work together to try to do something new or different or establish a different way of approaching things. It's quite incredible. Nikki and I, before we started the show, we were discussing if someone would have asked me six months ago if I'd ever used the word epigenetics, I would have told them absolutely not. But in hearing what you're doing and the research that you're doing, it is so important to how we are describing healing from violence as well. I mean, I believe that the type of training and the way we'd like to change workplace culture would allow people to not only react and be be prepared to stand down a situation that may be violent, but it allows them to heal from violence as well. So this this discussion, the discussions that you and I have been having about flipping these switches so that people can, I think the way you put it when we spoke was regain their resilience. Do you want to talk a little bit more about this? Because that is the exact description. That's exactly how it feels. And when we see people come through our training, that yes, they've regained their resilience. They're they're ready again. So please share your ideas on this. Yeah, this was so beautiful. That's what's so beautiful about epigenetics and our, our genes, are the way we're built, the way we humans are built. You know, like a lot of people do talk about the deleterious or harmful effects of violence. But in truth, we are made to be a resilient. Humans are very resilient. Like animals help us resilience. You know, they help us be resilient, you know? And so the, the beautiful thing is, is that by understanding what causes us to sometimes go off the track or go off the rails or actually have ill health are also the very insights that help us how to have good health and how to restore health or how to, how to keep health. We know that some people are more resilient than others. And if we really start personalizing medicine and personalizing how we approach the health of each individual, we can better understand how to customize processes or healing processes for each person. Like some people are more resilient than others. We know this. We meet people. We see that some people go through unbelievable things and are resilient and other people have a harder time going through those same things. And rather than everybody just saying what's in people's head, which is just a horrible thing to say to people because... You know, the brain and the, our whole entire neural system and the way our whole body is built, we've got to understand that the physiologic response that we have to things is really how we actually interact with our environment. And so how do we, like we were talking, one of the things we were saying in a conversation I really loved that we had was we were talking about how 
many times have you heard people say, sports saved my life. This this football saved my life or some sport, some kind of, you know, taekwondo, whatever. These things, this not just a social event, but actually being able to do it saved our lives. I can I can say music saved my life. You know, or sometimes a single person comes into our life and they have such a positive impact because they believe in us or give us such hope or strength that they really take us from one path that was really going to be an unhealthy path and they could actually, in a sense, save our lives, you know? Sure. So what is what is happening to us? We've talked about wanting to do some research and understand what is physiologically happening to us when we have these interactions or when we actually are able to do music or our athletics or what all of these things that we are able to take control of and work at and fail on and then succeed at and fail on and succeed at. All of those processes are some of the things that teach us also how to be resilient. But how exciting it would be to imagine like doing saliva or buckle swab and understand what that person needs to help them be more resilient or understand if something's really helping them get back on a resilient track. Because once you can understand that, we can really help people find that the, and be the very best person that they were born to be in the first place. I mean, that sounds crazy, I am this guy, but it's not, you know? No, I, no, I, it, it sounds fascinating. And the people who've been doing empowerment self-defense work, they know that that's happening. They know that that empowerment self-defense and the work that comes out of an empowerment self-defense workshop or training is giving that person back their resilience. We know that. We don't have proof of that, you know, but we know that that's what's happening because the training is trauma-informed and it is scenario-based. It gives a unique opportunity for this resilience to start, the reclaiming your resilience to start. So I know that you attended the our summit to reduce violence in the workplace, and this is what started this relationship. What did you think when you were there and heard some of the discussions that we were having? I'd love to have you share what you thought of the summit and what was going on there. Yeah, well, it was so different than any any conference I've ever been to before, for sure, because it had people from all kinds of disciplines that I haven't normally interacted with, for one. I'm kind of used to more of a sterile world in a way, you know, but it was such a, a rich environment of people coming from all different walks of life, all different types of professions and talking about what they were doing or how they were actually not no longer tolerating like a, a culture of like not just violence i mean a lot of, sometimes i think people think of violence as being a physical act but i think the emotional violence and emotional control and demeaning that is probably some of the greatest violence anyone can experience or some of the it can be equally as harmful for sure and so to hear people talk in these small groups and have all of the different experts that were speaking from every kind of walk of life from restaurant owners to military people. I mean, I was in, of course, Olympian. So I was just blown away by everybody's having such a similar message from a wildly different experience or very, very different organizations. And so that's why the solutions that you're coming up with are going to be so different than what other people can come up with, because it's not going to be just unifocused or one narrow, narrow belief or thought. And so having, oh, the other thing I really loved about it as well is that, and I and I really have become passionate about this, this this year, maybe even the last couple of months, is that we shouldn't be chasing the answer, we should be chasing the question. And because when you chase the answer that you think is there, then you actually box yourself and you no longer have that innovation ability to actually think of something that's really maybe outside of completely what you would think about or think of. And so my new thing is don't think outside the box. There is no box. Forget the box. There is no box, you know. <laughs> and right. 
But your summit was there was no box. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's similar to a, a line of thought that we that we discuss all the time within Pave is, you know, a lot of times most of these industries around violence, most of these sectors, they look for who's responsible or what's responsible instead of being response able right? Like able to respond. And so that's a, a little bit along the lines of what you're talking is that, you know, let's, let's change our perspective a little bit. And in the summit, you know, I think what you're discussing is all of these industries are siloed in their problem, right? They're all dealing with the problem in their own silos. And there could be so much benefit if the discussion, you know, across those silos and brought together, think about how much better we could do at solving these issues. And that's really what our goal was with the summit is to have people talking about, this is working, this is not working. Oh, this is working in mine. This could help you there. You know, that that cross discussion among the sectors. So it's nice to hear that you felt that was a, a strength of it. Totally. One of the things that we said in the most recent conversation that you and I had, one of the things that you said really stuck with me is that you achieve like one of the highest levels ever possible. And to achieve that, you had to keep a beginner's mindset. And I loved that so much because I always say my superpower is being naive. And I never would have stopped being naive because it's like the things I'm trying to do or the things that I've actually been able to accomplish so far through epigenetics by collaborating with some basic scientists and epidemiologists and other people, I would have not tried if I had not been so naive. But I was driven by the question. I was driven by something that really bothered me that was happening in these children. And so you kind of get blinded to the impossibility pretty quickly when you care about something and you or stay naive. And it's a little bit like, it's not quite what you were saying, but it actually kind of is along the same line. Like, yeah, the inner's mindset is keeps you from actually boxing yourself or putting the, the rails up when, in fact, the answer is probably on the other side. Right. And just settling, right? I mean, I think around violence and violence prevention, we've just settled for so long. We've just convinced ourselves that it's just part of the job if, you know, you're a nurse and a couple times a week you're pushed or grabbed or bitten. But you know what I mean? It's just part of the job, you know, or if you're, you know, a woman in an office that predominantly your coworkers are predominantly men, it's just part of the job that you're going to deal with the inappropriate joker you know, the inappropriate comment. We, we, we've just settled, you know, and one thing I've been taught by my parents and I, and I get this impression from your background as well is you don't settle. You don't ever settle. So I think we're at a crossroads as we come out of this pandemic that, you know, we need to be reminded of all those things that were important to us when the pandemic started, like all these things that we embrace differently because of the pandemic that we hold on to that now, that we don't fall back into that settling. I know that's what motivates me when I'm pushing PAVE forward. Yeah. You know, in the medical community, especially in the physician medical community, they've been quick to dismiss things that are emotional and psychological. Uh, to a degree, it's true. You know, and then some really great researchers in the 90s came up with adverse childhood experiences and looked at how adversity in early childhood was really highly linked and increased the likelihood of having problems later in life. And so looking at adverse childhood experiences, and I, I don't call them experiences, I call them environments, because for me, often it's not a single experience. When you really look at the totality of things, it's like the fabric of that family or the fabric of that community. So adverse ch childhood environments is where I think the damage really occurs. But then flip it, you know, I'd like to flip things because what if we take that into healthy childhood environments? And that doesn't just mean 
like a single, you know, like it's not just a single act. Everybody has a temper. Everybody has a problem. It's not like we're type trying to do some kind of like a utopia kind of thing at all. Stress is actually good for us. You know, like, can you imagine ever being an athlete without any applying any stress to your muscles and joints and such, you know, it, it wouldn't work. You would be like me then. <laughs> but you, it's really a beautiful thing to think about how we can take not adverse childhood environments, but take healthy childhood environments, be it by adding the structure of athleticism or structure of like, you know, once you, once you experience that kind of goodness, it's so much easier to recognize what you're not going to accept. What this is not an environment that's going to be okay with me. I'm not going to do this. We're not going to do this. We're not going to go this way, you know? Right. So, and then having the ability at first, they measured it through just like questionnaires, but take those questionnaires in adversity questionnaires that lead to bad health. Now we take epigenetics and we look at not only what leads to bad health, but what can lead to good health. And you take it something that's more concrete. It's not more real. It's just more concrete. It's more understandable. Like people, when they see that these measures are going biologically, going right or going wrong. And then we actually look at workplace environments where it's actually unhealthy or adverse. And then we actually say, well, this has to change because we're not going to let our, our, our families or our patients or our people that are in our business, we're not going to let them go on to have these health problems are going to like really drive them into an early death. I mean, I don't want to be too dramatic, but the fact is it's, it's true, you know? Right. And not only, I mean, it's not dramatic, but we're also looking at a more productive employee, right? I mean, it, that, that's the extreme of an early death, but there was an approach that the Mexican national team took that I thought was incredible. Instead of selecting their national team, there was a portion of it of the win you're in. Mm -hmm. But to get to the win you're in tournament, they gave a criteria that was kind of tiered. Because if they had an athlete that was coming from a rural part of Mexico that never really had access to high-level coaching, that never really was on a successful team with a successful coach, but took fifth at the nationals. Uh-huh. They identified that person that that person should get more work. That person should have more access. Yeah. Now that's the chills. That's just yeah. fantastic. Right. You know, and, and they did things like did a massive nutrition, uh, nutritional overview. If some kids were, you know, coming in fifth or sixth, but they had issues with their feet. So imagine, okay, we could just fix this a little bit. Who knows what's going to happen? It, and it sparked for me like, wow, they were insightful about what is potential do you want this guy this athlete who's got the best coach the national coach and a beautiful gym and a beautiful facility has sportsmen has all these things and he's taking second or do you want the kid who's sixth who has had none of that access where is that potential going to lead and i think when we look at violence in the workplace and violence in general it is robbing us of that potential we don't even know what's there there's yeah. so much there that we're missing out on. It's, and that's what I see through a lot of your, a lot of your research and the things that you are trying to accomplish with your research is that what does that next generation look like? Yeah. Once we get your research out there and the things that you're doing out there, mm -hmm. there's so much potential out there that we've missed out on and that we can have access to now. Right. You know, and and families, some families have a culture that. Most of us would consider to be violent, but if it's a culture you've always known, it's not necessarily seen as violent. Same thing in workplaces, right? 
And what's interesting, like when you actually start explaining and families start seeing a different way, from parents sometimes when in abuse cases, when they start seeing a certain a different way, or when they saw that epigenetics have been impacted a certain way, and they understood that it was actually having a biological impact on the child that was hefty in a negative way, it actually started changing their thinking about it and how they wanted to approach it, how they wanted to learn. They became open to learning a different way that developed a beginner's mindset, I guess, you know? Yeah. And and then when that happened, parents started actually being more open to a different way. And then that ripple effect was a positive ripple effect. And so that's what's exciting and interesting as well, is when you start changing the mindset and understanding even what violence is, redefining it, rather than it being this huge high bar that we'd have called something violent until people were stabbed or something crazy like that, you know? Whereas many, many things happen way before that, or they, they never even happen, you know? Yeah. It's, what kind of impact is this pollution having on our DNA, causing our genes to actually have a negative switches instead of those positive switches? Because we have both. We have both in us, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's what, you know, it sounds corny, but that's what we talk about disrupting the dominoes. And it's been this soapbox that I'm on lately is that nothing happens in an instant. Very few things happen in an instant. Like right now it happens. There are so many things that lead up to that. And if we can stop it at microaggression number two or gaslighting event number eight, if we can, you know, if we can catch it, if we could disrupt those dominoes beforehand, that changes everything. And understanding how those lower resourced families, what a negative impact that can have on them. And so understanding it in a much higher level and a much deeper level about the potential that we can actually give and provide by actually preventing such low, low resource families to not having access to healthcare or to athletics or to musicians that can actually teach them. All of these things are, you know, like we could have a measurable positive effect by actually changing how we think about this. I was so curious. I know that this is your podcast, but how... <laughs> How did you become so passionate about violence and preventing it and changing the story, changing the story of violence, you know? Well, for me, and I grew up in, at the time, one of the most violent areas in the city of Chicago. So it was something that I felt even at a very early age that my parents tried very hard to shield me from. Mm -hmm. And that would be gun violence, gang violence. So I was aware of it. I was aware it was something that I should be protected from. That coupled with two parents that go to incredible lengths to stand up for what's right. Yeah. So they were a great example in that sense. And then there was one event in particular that just really blew my mind. We were at a, a women's and girls camp at the Olympic Training Center in Marquette, Michigan. And we were there for a full week of training and they brought in a guest trainer from Korea, fresh off the world championships, good looking, charismatic world champion to run a couple of the workouts. And I noticed early on that a couple of the teenage girls were, you know, kind of giggly and they were like, oh, that coach invited us to our room and we exchanged t-shirts. Master said, hey guys, you know, why don't you stay out of coach's room and you know, he had asked them to change the shirt right there in front of him. And then a couple more days went on in the camp and he had started paying a lot of attention to my roommate, my bunkmate for, for this camp. One night he came knocking on the door and asked her to step out. And it had been several hours into the night and she returned and she was bloodied lipped and bloody nose. And, you know, she had, she had been assaulted. She had been raped. What? And when we got to a point in our discussion that we should tell the camp administrators and the leadership for the camp, they really just 
kind of took her to the side and you know you're such a you're you're such a olympic hopeful and are you sure you want to go public with this and we're going to make sure he leaves the camp right away don't worry about it and she you know she agreed to all those stuff but then really she disappeared she just stopped competing and it really struck me as unfair and you know just really started my modern day push to advocacy to keep the athletes safer and stop these type of things from happening. So that that's what really pushed. And then it made me notice more like, okay, did that athlete disappear for that same reason? Huh? Did that athlete stop being able to make weight yep. because of that same thing? And I saw a pattern. So it really led to a life of advocacy from that point on. And unfortunately, Taekwondo at the Olympic level was riddled with this type of predatory behavior. Um, so it was a it was a constant fight. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful story. Thank you for sharing it. I think that that's one of the areas I really feel very passionate about as well. Because you see so many children when they're sexually abused, they it can shut them down. Yeah. And uh, when they get shut down, it's not you know again people are saying oh they're just like withdrawing. There people kind of almost minimize it sometimes. You just need to get over it. You know, it's fine, blah, blah, blah. But there's a physiologic thing that's happening to those those children. And to be able to understand that and to actually address it, just, I mean, like I've told you before, I'm a breast cancer survivor, you know? And one of the things I was so excited about when I got the diagnosis of breast cancer and the way they treated me, this was like in 2015, I was so stunned about how careful everybody was. I know that sounds silly, but everybody was like, so careful to see exactly what kind of hand and see if the treatment fit exactly. And then they followed me up for five years and they still follow me up. They still, you know, like all of this very, very detailed focus to make sure that I had the best chance of being the best and having surviving the, you know, like complete cure and survival. And I just got so inspired by that because what if we treated children that are exposed to violence the same way? What if we treated violence like cancer? I mean, why are we doing this? Why are why don't we like, okay, this happened. Okay, let's look at your epigenetics or other things as well. And let's follow your health. We're going to make sure we get you back on board. We're going to do what it takes. We got to understand how you're reacting to it, what your physiologic makeup is, because that's what we do with cancer, you know. And then we're going to actually customize a treatment and we're going to follow you and we're going to actually make sure that you actually or your best self and this person that did this to you does not continue to haunt you or does not continue to cause you to have this physiologic outcome that is not your best, it can really destroy people's health, their potential, their livelihood, all kinds of things. And so this is not acceptable. But for yep. us to just brush it under the rug, and I think sometimes it's brushed under the rug because it's often far more likely for females to be assaulted than males. Males are assaulted too, and they're also very quiet about it. it has the same horrible effect on males as well. And so for us to like, um, you know, like rather than a society turn a blind eye to this, like look at it bold in the face, not just like we would attack, you know, cancer, you know, yeah, not with shame because people should be ashamed when they had cancer, not with yep. shame, but with, we're going to do with this. We are, we, we've got you, you know? Right. I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I hope that the work that PAVE is doing and being able to partner with people like you creates that plan, that plan of attack to this is what we're going to do to get you better, to get you to the best place that you could possibly be. I, I hope that that really happens. I would like you to please share a little bit about this exciting app that you and your team have created. I yeah. think it's fantastic. Thank you for sharing it with me. So I'd love for our listeners to hear about this. Yeah. I mean, I'm very excited. It's a, it's a vision that 
I had with a couple of other many, many years ago, like this is how long ago I kind of had this idea with Palm Pilot. It, well, at first with DOS, you know, like we had to like do computers like that. You don't know where you know, thank goodness they don't, you know, but you know, and then it just kept going and kept going. And so we eventually got an NIH grant that helped us collect the evidence that was needed to populate the app I'll tell you about. And so we, we looked to see the differences in bruises from children being physically assaulted from violence, violent acts against children versus those that had accidental injuries from just playing fun things or accidents that really do happen. You know, people fall or parents drop their children or whatever. Things really do happen. And so we looked at the characteristics of those findings and saw that they were quite different. They were, you know, being physically assaulted injures you differently physically and physiologically than does having an accident and having nurturing people around you. And uh, so we looked at those differences. We actually were able to, a, we looked at like I think 34 different regions of the body. And actually then we built this little 3D human, like it's in our, it's in the app. So it's a little virtual 3D human. And we actually have it like almost like fabric where we actually have each subregion of the body tagged with the data that we got from what screening over 21,000 children. And I'm very excited about it because the reason we wanted to do this is that we wanted to make it accessible to anyone and everyone who actually takes care of children so they could actually have the evidence right there in their hands. And they didn't, people that don't have access to the literature, I mean, like who, you know, a lot of people don't have access to the literature. So you want social workers, physicians, whoever is having to take care of children to be able to see and understand the difference between an accident, accidentally occurring bruise and abuse related bruise. That was a crossover. It's not magic. You know, a lot of things, a lot of accidents really do happen as a screening tool. But it had like 96% sensitivity and 87% specificity for helping you see the difference between abuse and accident. And in the app, you can actually click on what you're seeing on your patient. It asks a few more questions. Yeah. And it gives you the facts of the data so that you can make a decision on your own. You can see how many cases of the, that had this, like let's take an angle of jaw, for example. Because sometimes people, when they attack somebody, attack them around the neck or around the jaw. That's true for adults as well with domestic violence survivors or those that don't survive. And so you have that, and it shows you how many times that occurred in young children from abuse and how many times it occurred from an accidental event. So then you have that data to help you inform your own decision-making. But where I really see this going in the future, we're actually right now working on a fracture model. So fractures will be in there as well. So it'll be an injury plausibility app that helps you kind of like think through bruises, think through fractures, think through brain injuries, think through abdominal injuries. But the, what I'm really excited about that we haven't got the grant yet, but I hope we do. But I'm sure we will. It's not hope we will somehow. The where you can actually see when you have these certain physical findings that predict you're in a violent environment, that the fabric of your environment is violent, that then we know that it we can discover if that predicts whether your epigenetics are already changing, just like with cancer treatment, right? So if we actually understand what's happening and we see it before it actually really gets, you know, like recalcitrant where it's harder to change. If we get to that point where we can see it early on, then we can know to do something and we can actually put people into like a, what we need to do to help the family, to help the child, to help people recover their health or if, it, or if it's an adult. You know, adult survivors too, this is this works for anyone because we all have the same mechanism, a machinery in our own bodies. So for the app right now is just bruises. That was our first step. We actually already have a grant going on where we're going to put the fractures in there. We already have some data on epigenetics as well. So the vision is that this app that we have right now is like a living app and we'll actually have it evolved to where you can actually touch on this little human. You can actually answer a few questions and it will give you probabilities and help predict which child has already possibly sustaining an epigenetic change. Then we can actually work with people to try to, to customize their, their treatment. That's, that's in the future though. I'm sorry. I keep yeah. 
I thought it was pretty fascinating to run through it. You know, it asks questions on where the bruising occurred and then who the the child was with at the time. Was it a delayed report or yeah, I thought it was an incredible app and I can see it saving a lot of children's lives, Dr. Pierce. So I hope you see that. I hope you see that that value. Thank you so much. It's it's called if you just look for L C A S T, it stands for Lurid Children's Abuse Screening Tool, L C A S T. And that's the easiest way to find it. It's a little bit hard to find that we have to come up with an easier searchable name, but you know, this is our first go at it. <laughs> right. Right. No, I thought, I thought it was incredible. So I, I'm going to ask this. It probably seems like a strange question, but did you ever see yourself as being part of the violence prevention movement? Because I believe strongly that you are. You are in this movement with us. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for, for believing that too. And, you know, I... I didn't, I, I didn't even see myself as being a, a kind of an accidental tourist in everything I've kind of done, actually. I mean, I started off, you know, like I didn't go to school that much. I was kind of a skipper and I mean, I love music and I was always into music. And so I was a music major at first and, and I didn't see myself going that direction. And then when my dad was sick in the hospital, I became very interested in his diabetes and what was going on. And so I thought I would maybe study nutrition. I became interested in nutrition. And then I thought, well, let me just try the pre-med courses. I mean, like literally just following things that interest you was so critical. And I think that I was, you know, when I look back at my own life and my own childhood, things that actually really touched me were certain children that maybe had been abused or certain things that had happened to other children or even, you know, you don't know why something grabs you or, you know, something chooses you, but it does, you know. And, and when I started seeing those uh, some children when I was in med school that had been like hurt or abused. It's like, you just can't get past it. And, you know, some people ask me, they say, how could you, I mean, people ask me all the time, how can you do this work? I mean, children die from this. I mean, it is tragic. I've seen so many children and, you know, like you come into the emergency department and they're full, in their full arrest, they die with some of these injuries. Um, or you have rape victims, you know, babies and young children that have been raped and they, you know, it's hard to imagine how they're going to recover. I mean, this is, yeah, it is hard. And people say, how can you do this? And, you know, once you meet these children and you know their stories and you see the possibility of changing that story, how can you not do it? How can you not? And I hope that everybody listening to this podcast, it's like they just become passionate about how we can all prevent violence because it is, you know, how can you not do it? How can you not do it? Yeah. I don't think, I mean, it just touches all of us. Every single day, we're, we're missing out on something. Yeah. Because someone is not being all they can be because of violence. That's just truly what I believe. So you've talked a lot about this incredible research and these incredible tools that you're creating for children, right? For young children. Do you see this really being able to cross over into adults? And how can those those same skills be used to flip a switch for a survivor at the adult level? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, 100%, definitely. The, I mean, that's what's so exciting is that we are, it's how our machinery, our genetic machinery works is through epigenetic phenomena. That's like, that's not just for violence, it's for like health, it's for like building your brain, it's for building your immune system, it's for all of those things. It's how we, it's how we interact and act within the world. And so the research is very clear. That's not my area, but there are many, many researchers that do this all over the world that are very advanced in looking at adults and human and all kinds of biological responses to the environment and the social environment as well, like social determinants of health. 
uh, in a physiologic response to what's happening. So yeah, absolutely. The there there is always hope. There's always the ability. They used to think that your the way we the kind of human we build and the way we actually respond to the environment it became more and more fixed after age six or seven. And they don't think that anymore at all. It's like early we have an epigenetic response to what is going on in many ways, all the way up until we're dead, maybe after. And so that's exciting. Maybe it's a little harder. It's a little harder for me to learn languages right now too. But you know, things take a little bit more energy, a little bit more effort, and it's true biologically as well. But it's always true that we can actually recover from something, or we can actually heal from something, or we can have an emotional set point, or things that can help us get our epigenetics back in order, so to speak. I'm speaking like it's a simple thing. Obviously, it's a very complex thing, but the general concept is something that we all can actually gravitate to and understand, you know. Well, I mean, I see so much, so many possibilities here with your research, you know. Um, What impact does restorative justice have on on our epigenetics? Is that switch flipped? If I can have a discussion with someone who's wronged me, you know, does that help my healing process? Does that give me back my resilience or help me move at a quicker pace? I mean, it's just fascinating to me, Dr. Beer. So I'm so happy that you indulge me in all these thoughts. It's exactly what it takes, you know? And then the more that people get excited that all of the people that have all these areas of expertise, the more that they get excited about these possibilities and going forward and exploring it, the more that suddenly something that was almost abstract it always will. Pie in the sky now becomes the standard. It used to be pie in the sky to think about flying, you know. Right. Right. And it was not that long ago. You know? Yeah. Yeah. People, it was ridiculous to ever fly. And so now it's like, that's not pie in the sky at all. You know, so it's, I really feel, I mean, this is a very bold thing to say, but I think that understanding how our bodies physiologically respond to like the environment and our epigenetic response, positive and negative, to the environment is maybe as, as important or more important discovery than even the discovery of the germ. And people didn't used to believe in germs, you know? <laughs> yes. I mean, most people do believe in germs now, so fiction. <laughs> right. Okay, so this is my last question. And really, I ask every single podcast guest this. If you could have the company, have the audience of one person or group I'll say one or two people that you really think could push your research forward or push the movement forward. Who would that be? Well, that's a good question. It would be probably a group of impassioned businesswomen that get it. I mean, that's kind of a bizarre answer. When I've seen people, group businesswomen and men both, People that, you know, they're, you know, people that are really driven by changing how things happen, that have the means to help you change how things happen. Some of the best work and the most exciting breakthrough work I've ever done has occurred because of people allowing their money to go at high risk projects and high risk ideas that have taken a while to work, but they actually end up working. And when you have to go through like all this laborious agency application, sometimes it can take years to get the funding. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a group of people, business people that come together and they have the mindset to actually make something happen and to give you the the leeway, the leash in a way to actually fail or succeed, but you have the idea and they understand the idea and they give you the trust to do it, that's that's where you really can start making huge differences without having such big hoopla around it. Yeah. Great. 
Well, Dr. Pierce, I hope that this was as enjoyable for you as it was for me. It is such an honor to have you as our first guest for season two on Disrupting the Dominoes. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's exciting. I can't wait to follow and meet more with you and have more brainstorming on this. Yes. I mean, you're stuck with me now, Dr. Pierce. You are stuck with me. All right. So thank you again for joining us for another episode of Disrupting the Dominoes. That's Disrupting the Dominoes of Violence. 